to the Murdoch Mysteries podcast, where we are going episode by episode to look at the historical references and little nuggets given of either science or technology that are explored in the TV show and give some historical context to them. I am Ivy. I'm Kalinda. So how are you doing, Kalinda? I'm doing good. Hanging out in Oregon, getting rain. Got my wedding dress in the mail, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get married. All right, don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> Feels weird. Yeah. Um, not not necessarily unexpected. Yeah, actually. Still... <laughs> I mean, like, I know what you mean, but I'm sh- I kind of am, like, now hearing it from, like, a third person's perspective. Kind of sounds like you're not that excited. <laughs> You're like, no, it's getting just... married, it's a little weird. <laughs> I will. But I think it's just that, like, we don't think of ourselves as adults. <laughs> so. No, no, definitely not. Even though I've been with my partner now for... Almost 10 years. Yeah, like this, like, in December, November of this coming year, it will have been 10 years. And so... It doesn't necessarily feel like this big old leap where now I'm going to be tied down as a married woman. It's like I was already in a long-term relationship that I knew was going to end in marriage, like, I don't know, years a ago. couple years in. Yeah. <laughs> so, but at the same time, it was never planned. Mm-hmm. We, we, not, we had never planned a wedding. Technically, I still think of him as my boyfriend, not a fiance, because that never happened. Mm-hmm. I don't have an engagement ring, but we're going to get married. So, <laughs> yeah, but it feels so it feels weird. <laughs> I think it's also awkward for any kind of marriages going on right now because we're in a panoramic. After yeah, all. it's just gonna have to be very logistical rather than romantic, right? Yeah, but we'll be on the beach with only immediate family, and it'll be nice. Yeah, and I guess that's cool because, like, having it outdoors is something that I think you had said you had always pictured it. Oh, yeah. And so given the circumstances, it's lucky that that works out. Oh, yeah. I wanted it on the beach, and now it's... Gotta be. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't... (laughs) Nothing's changed there. (laughs) So that's, that's what's up with me. How are you doing? I'm okay. I've been watching, oh, so much TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much. <laughs> I started watching this, um, well, this kind of like murder mystery BBC or British, maybe it's not BBC, British um, TV show older from like the 90s called Jonathan Creek, which the thing is, I've watched so much murder mystery television, especially British television at this point that like Jonathan Creek. I don't want to say that it's like I'm scraping the barrel, but it is definitely like not not the top 10 you usually talk about. <laughs> so literally never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And the thing is like it is really kind of kooky and like like in a awkward way. But mm. at the same time like once you get into it that is sort of the appeal. But basically the point is I think of it as sort of being like Midsummer Murders, except they're amateurs. They're not uh, actual investigators. So Jonathan Creek is this guy who designs 
magic tricks for a stage musician, uh, musician, magician. And the other half of the duo is a woman who writes, she writes about badly handled criminal investigations. So she often is trying to oh. um, acquit people and stuff like that. Oh. So they work together on a bunch of mysterious crimes that no one can explain, like someone found in a locked room, you know, mm. murdered kind of deals. And what's interesting is because now that, like, we've talked about Sherlock Holmes, one thing that actually stood out to me about Jonathan Creek is it is very Sherlockian, but in a way that we don't usually remember Sherlock Holmes as being, you know, like, what I feel like the modern perspective is on, like, a typical Sherlock Holmes story is that Sherlock Holmes is insufferable, arrogant, notices mm -hmm. acute details, is, like, a hyperactive genius or something, right? But that, you know, he's kind of smarmy and, and rude or something, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in Jonathan Creek, the kind of Sherlockian element comes in in a way that I feel like we've we kind of tossed away with like Sherlock Holmes and uh, sorry, the BBC Sherlock and um, elementary and etc. Mm -hmm. where it's not about like zeroing in on tiny clues as much as it is. I mean, there is that, but like Jonathan Creek is looking at it, you know, it'll be like, it's a locked room. And inside was only a bit of broken glass and a rubber band. How was it done? You know, Mm -hmm. where that feels very like Sherlock Holmes, like original Sherlock Holmes to me, where it's like a bunch mm -hmm. of literal puzzle pieces as if it's like an escape room or like that kind of thing, where it's like sure. you get these things together and then you have to figure out the mechanics of it rather mm -hmm. than like going from like lead A and lead B, right? Whereas like, because that's what we kind of think of as detectiving now. Is like, mm. I'm going to follow up, interview this person, and then ask this person, and then look into mm -hmm. this clue, and then come back with forensics on this or whatever. Whereas he's kind of like, like, mm, I'm going to look at the room where it happened and then explain this impossible trick, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Felt very Sherlock Holmes to me in a way that I had mm -hmm. forgotten uh, of course, that's why I didn't like Sherlock Holmes, because <laughs> I was always like, they would give you little details like that and be like, oh, there was, you know, a rubber band on the floor. And then it wasn't until like the last page that then you would find out that the rubber band was like the size of a dime rather than the size you expected it to be. And you're like, well, that's kind oh. of important. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know if rubber bands were different back in the day, but mm -hmm. you surprised me there, right? Where it's like, yeah. he's he's making like this deduction on how the mechanics of it all work that would have been impossible for me to know if I didn't look at the rubber band or look at the piece of glass, whatever. Anyways, oh. it's a TV show. It's kooky and weird. It's a little bit spooky even, but in sort of like a ridiculous Adams family kind of way. I don't know. Ah. And um and it's also pretty atypical in that like I like how his counterpart, um her name is Maddie. She's not your typical like 
lead or romantic possible intrigue. She's fun. She's very 90s. Another vibe that Jonathan Creek gives off is um, very like four weddings and a funeral kind of like, this is how 90s British adults behave. All dating exploits result in disappointment via like one little idiosyncratic thing. What was with that? That happened in Friends? That happened in this (laughs) thing as well? Where it's like they meet someone and then it's interesting and then some like really random sitcom style thing keeps them from dating them. They're like, oh no, she eats her food weird. I can't handle it. (laughs) Can't be with her. Um, She's not the one. And also it's like before proper cell phones and before like dating apps, people are just meeting in bars willy nilly. I'm like, that's dangerous. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) But whatever. Anyways, it is a little funny. And I got through like, they're short seasons. I got through like three seasons. And then they got rid of Maddie. And they didn't explain where she went. And I was like, I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't know about this. And then the new leading lady. I like this actress. Um, I recognize her from a couple other things, but in this, she's blonde and attractive and much more, like, of a typical style of beauty, right? A little Mm -hmm. more conventional. That was, like, bad enough. Like, I didn't really like their dynamic or their, their vibe. And that wasn't great, but then I watched, like, the first episode or two into those seasons, and it also gets sort of, um... Like, the plot lines or the the mysteries are different. They're no longer sort of like, you know, oh, look at this beautiful house in the country. They're more industrial. Or like, the leading lady, her name is Carla, Carly or something like that. She's not just an investigative journalist. She's a broadcast journalist. So she does a TV show. And it's much more like, what's... It's less earthy. Maddie's more earthy, and this new vibe is very capitalist. And like, ooh, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta make things sexier. So we've gotta introduce this new girl who's more conventionally attractive. But not only that, we have to make the mysteries sexier or something too. And I was like, Bleh. lame. I liked it because it was weird. You clearly don't know what Jonathan Creek is about. It's about being awkward and weird. So. <laughs> I don't think I'll continue with it. But the first three seasons were good. Me and my mom also started watching Miss Scarlet and the Duke last night. This was, like, something I was looking forward to. Because it's, like, probably around 1880s female private investigator. The point is, Mm. her father's just died. Her father was a private investigator. And now she's trying to take up the mantle. But as a woman, no one's giving her any... Uh, credence. So I was expecting to really like it, but the more I watch it, the more I'm like, (laughs) I don't like it. More, not because the mysteries aren't good or anything. I just think the agenda of it is like, it's very much concerned with like, oh, being a woman in Victorian London and how hard it is for her to be a businesswoman and all this thing. It's a little bit like over the top on how sexist everyone is. Like, 
everyone is vehemently her antagonist. Even, like, Mm. the Duke, who's supposed to be, like, her friend. But he's, like, an actual inspector, police inspector. And he undermines her all the time. And I'm like, I cannot believe that he's, like, a titular character because he's a He's a piece of not great. (laughs) 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 He's a pain. I don't like him at all. And like, and I, I don't see him being redeemed because I'm like four episodes in, there's only six episodes. And I'm like, I think, I think that ship has sailed. I can't believe we're even still pretending they're friends. And she still, like, seeks his respect and wants to prove herself to him. And I'm like, oh my god. He is actively working against you behind your back. Why, girl? Move on. Oh my god. You can do so much better. And the actor is so attractive. He's, He's so attractive that I am surprised I can't get over it. Right? That's how bad (laughs) it is. Wow. (laughs) truly shocking he's got a great beard (laughs) (laughs) um but the costumes are great she has several great outfits but the alienist is much better (laughs) if you've seen the alienist do you know what it is i have not seen any of these so (laughs) have you heard of the alienist i think so but i know nothing about it okay well it's costumes are really good as well but it's also like I don't know. I think it's maybe just because my mom keeps on comparing Miss Scarlet and the Duke to the Alienist, but they're not even technically quite the same time periods. The Alienist and Murdoch kind of have more time mm, closer. comparison, yeah. I mean, the Alienist is much darker, and it's it's a one long mystery of a serial killer, but it's the same time period, and, and actually, I think when we get into the later seasons of Murdoch Mysteries, there will be more kind of relevant things to the alienist, including, like, alienism, which is psychology. Huh. That's why he's called the alienist. Oh. Because... I, I would not have known that. <laughs> well, before psychology was, like, psychology, a person with mental issues would have been considered, I think the quote is something along the lines of, alienated from their true self which is why they would have been called an alienist interesting okay if they studied psychology basically Mm -hmm. we also watched all of wandavision just tossing that out there just i want to see that it's really good but it's not over oh (laughs) so we got (laughs) we got to it i was like and then I that's the worst I didn't even like check to see how many were left or mm-hmm. I what I I knew it probably wasn't over by the time we watched it but now I'm like mm-hmm. I need to know what happens especially because like considering you've definitely seen more Marvel movies than me like I have mm-hmm. largely stayed out of I don't even know there's so many things happening in WandaVision that because a lot of it is supposed to be like subliminal or like where it's like, I'm not getting it. It's all going over my head because I don't know who these people are. Except I also have that problem because I did not see movies that either of them were in. Uh, I, like, stopped uh. watching a lot of the franchise, like, just before... It got deep. Like, I didn't see I didn't see Civil War. I didn't see 
the one where like we see Vision for the first time. Yeah. Which one is that one? I, Age of Ultron, I think. Yes, I have like that's the first because one that I just... the reason why I know that is because I thought he was Ultron. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't even know his name I was mean, Vision until WandaVision. I probably also have forgotten. I don't think I remembered her name was Wanda. Oh yeah. So like I I know none of these characters. I saw a lot of Marvel, and then at a certain point, I just stopped going to see it in theaters, and then I just never picked it up again. I watched Thor Ragnarok. I did too. That was great. That was good. That was a good. <laughs> it's the best one I've ever seen. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of anime this season. This season? This season, yes. Oh, you mean this like, winter? Um, well, because anime often act like when it's when anime airs, it seems like if it's going to come out weekly, right? That they actually like like a lot of animes all start that like on the same week. So when I say, like, this season of anime, it's because there's a lot of anime that's coming out right now. Yeah. That all that all started, I don't know the date, but, like, recently. Like, and I have not been watching anime for a while. My boyfriend still has, but I haven't been keeping up with it. But there's, like, Attack on Titan, new season right now. There's Sells at Work, season two. There's Pretty Derby. Which is Horse Girls. Oh my god. It's so cute. They're like, it's girls who are horses, who are also horses. Is it like My Little so, Pony kind of? When you say Horse no. Girls, I thought that they were like, like Horse Girls. Like girls you grew up with in elementary school. They all were in love with horses oh, and had ponytails. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so like, so like if you saw, if like, like a cat girl, right? So it's a girl, human, but with a tail and ears kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> but they're, hor- but so they're, <laughs> so it's a girl, but with a horse tail and horse mane, ears. ears. And then like, you know, their hair is similar colors actually to like different breeds of horses and stuff. So they often have like a streak of white, otherwise auburn colored hair right. because that's like similar to different breeds of horses and they race they literally like do like like quote-unquote horse racing right so they um they're all like doing tracks so it's kind of like a sport anime because you're just watching these girls like train you know this makes sense like (laughs) events and things (laughs) because for the longest time i thought free was actually about mermen because like i thought that they were all yeah you you don't know free Oh, is that a sport? That's a sport anime? Yeah, it's swimming, like one of the most anime? biggest ones other than Haikyuu. Right, 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 right. Yes, yes. Anyways, I thought it was about mermen. It turns out it's a swimming team, but I had just seen so many iterations <laughs> of the characters as like half shark, half orca, half dolphin, all this oh stuff. That's that I genuinely thought that that was the premise. Wow. And I thought that being free yeah. <laughs> meant something. <laughs> like like free willy kind yeah. of free. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually just about a swim team. Oh my god. Freestyle. Oh. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Pretty Derby is great. Pretty Derby's great. They literally, like, uh-huh. they do all this training and they have, like, um... Th- <laughs> but it's also, it's also, like, they're, 
like it's idol contests as well. So like they really like racing and running, but then when they win, they also like are supposed to get up on stage and sing and dance. Oh my god. At the end. They perform Linda, like an idol concert. So <laughs> unbelievable. It's so cute. Like imagine it is, honestly, <laughs> so sweet. I like like a few times throughout the series, season one and now season two, I have cried. I have like teared up with joy and and like also cried like through empathy and sadness i just it's so cute it's so cute it's great it's fabulous i just (laughs) i just don't really ever get behind sports animes except um, for you know eerie on ice yes but that's kind of because well actually i don't know if it matters but i've never really gone in for sports movies either like my sister really likes sports movies like that's her kind of preferred genre yeah. And when I'm like, I like sports movies. I've seen Wimbledon. My sister was like, that's not a sports movie. That's a romance. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, they're also, you know, they're like it, high school kids. Because, of course, they are. They're high school girls. Yeah. Out of school training. So, like, it's cute. It. I don't watch a lot of sport anime either. Or sport anything. But I would recommend. We're just not athletic. Looking into it. No. Zero out of zero. (laughs) (laughs) We'll probably have to do again, but against my will. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's get into what we're here for. Yeah, of course. Okay, so this week we watched episode six from season one, which is called Let Loose the Dogs, which I meant to do more research on this, but at least I know this much. Um, The title is probably from... Darn it. Is it? (laughs) I was like, I did look up this much. I think it's from like Julius Caesar. And someone says, let loose the dogs of war. Um, Ah. Call havoc and let loose the dogs of war. And so it's sort of like a call to war. Interesting. But I don't actually see how that connects to the the, the show. No, it was just dogs. Yeah, it's just kind of relating it to dogs. But apparently the title of this episode... This episode and its title comes from one of the actual original Murdoch books. Wait, this is a book series? Yeah, so I think it's called, like, the Detective Murdoch series. Should I have known this? Did I already know this? I thought I maybe I mentioned this? to you it, it to you off air. Off air. <laughs> As if we're... <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean. Um, As if we're live. As if if we're like professional radio people. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so the book series is by Maureen Jennings. I think there's only like nine books in the series, eight or nine. So not as prolific as the actual TV show. But I think the show is even like produced by, partially by Maureen Jennings and or her sister. Oh, whoa. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. That's... <laughs> so tell me about what happened in this episode, because I completely forgot. Yeah, it was my turn to recap this week in a single sentence. Uh, it's, ba- it's basically a man dies in the woods after his dog wins a ratting competition. So that's that's like minimal to no spoilers. Now, spoilers forever. 
Uh, so John Delaney is the victim. Yes. So John Delaney's dog wins a ratting competition, which is ratting is awful. Um, I could have researched it and I really didn't want to. I didn't even Google it. I just, I no. don't want to know anything <laughs> personally. No, as far, as far as I can tell, all I, all I can tell from ratting is from the episode. Right. And it seems that a dog is put into like a pen. Yeah. And has a certain amount of time to catch and kill rats. And the more they kill, the, the better. Basically. Sucks. <laughs> so yes, John Delaney's dog wins a ratting competition. Uh, a drunken man argues with Delaney that his dog wasn't the best dog and accuses him of cheating. The drunk punches Delaney, but the fight is quickly broken up. We watch Delaney leave the establishment and walk home in the woods where he's hit on the back of the head with a hoe-shovel kind of thing. And next we see him, he's dead in the river, having been found by his son, prize money missing. They find the drunk, passed out in the bushes nearby, and when Murdoch sees him, he identifies him as his own father. So dramatic. Well, it's more ba Murdoch backstory that I completely either forgot or never saw. Yeah, it's cool. So Murdoch obviously wants off the case because his own father is the main suspect, but Bracken Reed won't let him. Which, like, that seems something that would be so standard. Today. I know. Like, you could just give it to anybody else. But instead, <laughs> Bracken Reed, this is because I'm going to do my research on this. Bracken Reed is like, if you don't take it, then we're going to have to hand it over to the Pinkertons. Yeah. And it's like, there's station house number four. Like, they can't get another station in to do this. As if, like, Murdoch is the only detective at this one station. I mean, he seems to be, but that seems kind of, yeah. like, understaffed to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah, so the main suspect is Detective Murdoch's father, Harry Murdoch. Even though they're both technically Murdoch, I pretty much... If I say Murdoch, I'm talking about our protagonist, Detective Murdoch. And otherwise, I'll just call the dad Harry or something. Um, so Murdoch is pretty convinced that his father killed Delaney because he believes that Harry was responsible for his mother's death. Harry can't very well defend himself because he had motive, having earlier been angry enough to hit Delaney because of the potentially rigged ratting, was drunk and doesn't remember much of the night, but Harry states multiple times with conviction, I did not kill that man. Murdoch recalls as a kid that his father once hit his mother, and because of that, she had a concussion and fell into the river where Murdoch found her dead. The parallels are stark. Uh, Harry refutes Murdoch's claims, however, saying that's not what happened. But Murdoch takes a long while to come around to listening to his side of the story. As it turns out, Harry didn't hit his wife. She instead slipped and hit her head on the edge of the brick hearth. Harry admits, of course, that he was a drunk and not a great father, but says, I never hit my wife and I never hit my boy. So Harry is ultimately released. Next suspect, we have Mr. Newcomb, the owner of the ratting establishment. Do you, it's a pub or a hotel. Do you remember what it is? 
It's one of it's those. It's a it's a free house, which I think means it's, it's a like f- a pub. Okay. It's a Manchester Terrier free house, I think. It had a bar in it. Well, yeah, like pub just means public house, but I can't imagine oh. anybody staying there. You know, like like it yeah. didn't look like it had rooms. But who knows? For board or anything. Yeah. So Mr. Newcomb had an argument with Delaney before Delaney left the night he was murdered. But it comes out that they were arguing over Delaney being too greedy with the ratting. Newcomb and Delaney had cooked up a scheme to drug the dogs, sad, using tinctures of cocaine, morphine, and chloroform for different dogs so that they might fix the fights and let Delaney win the prize money. So Harry Murdoch was right about the cheating. So, but Newcomb wasn't administering the drugs himself. He had a man, Walter Lacey, do it. Lacey was the caretaker for the dogs, and at one point catches Murdoch snooping around and grabs the shovel hoe that we, as the audience, know is the murder weapon. Uh, So Murdoch, when he spots that instrument, notices blood on it. Lacey says that it's from the dead rats, but Murdoch is able to test to see whether or not the blood is human or animal. And, spoiler alert, it's human. Not looking good for Lacey. It also turns out that his wife, Jess Lacey, had been of <clears throat> interest to Delaney. So Murdoch thinks that perhaps Walter killed Delaney out of jealousy. They rummage through the kennel and find the prize money in the rafters. Uh, but just as they're about to arrest him... His wife, Jess, comes out from around the corner and confesses to killing Delaney. So they take Jess in for questioning. She says that Delaney had forced himself on her and she'd been so enraged that she followed him and killed him. But the evidence doesn't quite match up, as she says she put the body in the river while he was still breathing, but we know there was no evidence of water in his lungs. So Murdoch believes she's trying to protect someone. Which leads, finally, to Philip Delaney, the deceased's son. He appears to be autistic, though they use other words. Um, Mm. He's really good with numbers and obsesses over time, polishing and keeping his pocket watch clean. The watch was a gift from Jess, who had always been kind to him while his father had been angry and abusive. He'd helped Murdoch with the case in the beginning, having noted the exact times that people came and went from the establishment the night of the murder, and giving an exact time when he left that night and found his father's dead body in the river. But the one person he doesn't want to give times for or say where they were is Jess, the person he cares about the most. Murdoch pushes him, and while he doesn't outright confess, when Jess sees Murdoch interrogating him, she finally tells the truth that Philip had walked in on his father forcing himself onto Jess, and in anger, he'd followed his father down to the river and killed him. Jess ran after, but was too late. She then helped Philip put Delaney in the river and took the prize money to make it look like a robbery. Uh, She's worried about what will happen now to Philip, but at the end, they look at the paper, and it seems Philip may get an easy sentence since his father had been abusive and Philip had been defending Jess. Mm. So... That's that's it. Well done. Thanks. Yeah, so actually I did end up looking up savant syndrome, which is what we would actually call what was his name? Philip. Philip, yeah. So apparently 
um, something I didn't know is that savant syndrome is not necessarily exclusive to autistic people. So, I mean, but I'm, I'm assuming in this movie, you know, they're not going to be like super exact about this. I think that we are supposed to recognize him as autistic, but it was interesting just because I never knew that, that like, yeah, you can have savant syndrome and not be autistic and you can, and obviously we also kind of know that being autistic doesn't automatically make you some prodigy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the only other stuff that happened in the episode that I didn't talk about because it wasn't really um, pertaining to the plot Mm -hmm. was just like cute Ogden and Murdoch moments because Murdoch was like not having a great time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's funny though that like Ogden was like, well, maybe you should give your father the same treatment that you would give your your other suspects in this case because Murdoch was sure that it was him. And Ogden was like, maybe you shouldn't do that. And Murdoch was like, no. And um, (laughs) it's like, no, it's definitely. And then later (laughs) he comes back to apologize to Ogden, but he's still pretty sure his father did it. So like, I'm like, what? Why are you apologizing to her? (laughs) Yep. He, He does not apologize elegantly. No. It's awkward and and not a great apology. Yeah, he hasn't quite kicked it yet. <laughs> no, but Ogden Ogden takes it anyway. She's like, are you apologizing? And he's like, yes. <laughs> She's like, <"I'll>, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then also Bracken Reed mm-hmm. being... <laughs> um, so it's funny because you forget that, of course, he's also an ex- inspector. Right. Even though he's the chief inspector, it's sort of, we we sort of forget where he's like, hey, you're not, you know, you're thinking you're so convinced it's your father, but it doesn't sound like it's. I think you're, you know, you're not you're not thinking clearly. I'll I'll help you out. <laughs> and I'm sort of like, what? And I'm like, all right, I guess he is an inspector, but it's so, yeah. We get to watch um, Bracken Reed try to go undercover and talk about betting and horse racing oh, yeah. and all this stuff <laughs> and he just does it <laughs> and he's just like not good at it oh uh, yeah <laughs> it's so funny i'm like how it's not a how, shining how? moment for him <laughs> no. but he's at least like trying and he's like you know it's your own dad like come on let's let's really try to let's see if we can get him off mm-hmm. and murdoch's like i he doesn't deserve he doesn't deserve anything <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i don't Actually, did you mention this? But um, we basically do find out that his mother died, or he he explains that he now knows that his mother died, presumably because of a concussion that yeah. had happened prior to her drowning, and that she only yes. drowned because of the concussion, which is why he yes. blamed his father. Yes, because he had believed that his father hit him, and then as it turns out, it was... Just that she slipped on the wood pile that Murdoch had been playing yeah. with. So but he kind of like, like slipped on already so tragic on, on his toys essentially. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but concussions keep on coming up as like being really awful things. Mm. Like you can get a concussion. Well, this happened in Jonathan Creek. <laughs> Somebody got a concussion, and you know they were sort of like sh- shocked. For a couple minutes had a glass of water and then they were like no yeah i'm totally fine 
And, you know, the person they were with was like, maybe we should go to the hospital. And she was like, no, 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 I'm fine. So then she's like, okay, for like 30 more minutes doing a bunch of stuff. And then she basically just passes out and dies in like in seconds all at once. And the point, well, at least in the TV show, you know, who's to say if they're like medical experts, but the point being that they stipulate that as soon as she got her concussion, even if they had gone to the hospital, it was already fatal. Mm -hmm. Just as soon as she got that smack on her head. Yeah. Which is so bananas. We are so frail. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In the Cells at Work anime, (laughs) there's an episode where um, it's like, it's so dramatic that um, all of these blood cells, they're up on, on like the scalp Mm -hmm. um, or like maybe on the face or somewhere. Yeah. And they're just like, oh yeah, we're near... We're, we're near the epidermis, so be be careful or whatever. And they're like, okay. Um, and then just something happens where, like, a bunch of stuff suddenly breaks. Like, buildings break. And then um, all of these, like, and then it's suddenly, like, anti-gravity and all of these blood cells just go streaming up toward the sky. Which normally, like, if there were, like, a cut, that would be happening. But they're not, like, leaving. They're just upside down. And uh, Yeah, or they're just, like, well, they're just, like... There, there's just a ton of blood now. All of mm-hmm. these blood cells, all like ah, um, and then like what what the show does that's so cute is they have these moments where it just like it's like freeze frame with a little ding, and then they tell you like the narrator comes in and tells you what's happening, and so <laughs> so you hear like the ding, it's like bump, a bump is you know this or that. So like it was just that someone hit their head. <laughs> And then a bump was forming on their head. Oh. <laughs> it was adorable though, where it's like it seemed so dramatic. And then and then you <laughs> and then it's just like, that's a bump. <laughs> yeah, we're fragile. <laughs> okay, so should I get into my topic? Yes, I would love I would love that. Okay, so mine's kind of long, and so maybe we shouldn't have talked so much about Jonathan Creek before this, but I really wanted to get it off my chest. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I did The Pinkertons, and obviously, for when I first watched this episode, I was like, oh my god, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to research in this episode that I am interested in. <laughs> And so I'm I was not gonna like, research ratting. Thank you very much. Well, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it'll just be a little small thing. You know, not every episode is gonna have something exciting to talk about. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up deciding on doing the Pinkertons, and that's a big thing. <laughs> They're a big deal. They're not like super relevant. Like it's just mentioned in this episode. But I think they will continue to be mentioned, so it's worth it to kind of know who they are for context, maybe when they come up again later. So yeah, um, I don't th- I don't think I had ever heard of the Pinkertons. Oh yeah, I guess I didn't really like appreciate. Ugh, there's a barking dog. I will close the window. Okay, so I guess the barking dog is still there, but. So I guess I didn't fully appreciate really like who the Pinkertons were either, but I had heard of them in passing probably on television. I mean, sometimes I got the impression that they were like thugs of some kind. 
but that they were like professional thugs. <laughs> Anyways, oh. I will get. I will actually explain who they are. And I did know that there was a a show titled The Pinkertons, but I didn't really understand what it was. I was like, it's a family. It's a it's a gang family. Uh, no, it's um a profession. It's a job. I don't know. <laughs> it's the Wild Wild West gang. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this will answer all of their questions. Love it. So as Brackenreed um, mentions, they might give the job to the Pinkertons, the, the job of the investigation to the Pinkertons. So the Pinkerton National Detective Agency was created in 1850 in Chicago by a Scotsman named Alan Pinkerton to be a private security investigative and law enforcement agency. So they were basically the first private detectives. They were known for hiring women and minorities from the beginning, which was unheard of for the time. A woman named Kate Warren. Yes, that that was like their MO from the beginning. A woman named Kate Warren was their first female hire and is attributed as being the first female detective. She was a 23-year-old widow who approached Pinkerton following an advertisement in the papers, pointing out um, a woman detective would be valuable as she could go where a man could not. So she proved her skill by befriending the wife of a prime suspect retrieving $50,000, which was the equivalent of over $1.5 million in today's money, in an embezzlement scheme, and obtaining the proof to convict this suspect. Wow. So in 1861, which was about three years after she did this um, first job, Alan Pinkerton was hired to investigate cessationist activity by the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railway, which was concerned about cessationists damaging the railways. Mm -hmm. So this is a quote. It was whispered there was a plan to blow up the Capitol and seize the arsenal and Navy Yard, that Washington soon would be isolated, with railroad tracks torn up, bridges burned, telegraph wires destroyed, that armed secret societies were springing up throughout Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia, ready and geared for action. So Kate Warren was placed in Maryland in opulent social circles to masquerade as a rich Southern lady, a Mrs. Cherry, using the accent she picked up in Alabama during her first job in the embezzlement scheme. She attended parties at Barnum City Hotel, which was both lavish and the cessationist headquarters. In these investigations, it became increasingly clear that cessationists were plotting to assassinate the then-president-elect Abraham Lincoln before his inauguration. (gasps) Pinkerton, along with Lincoln's future Secretary of State William H. Seward, urged Lincoln to take the threat seriously. Lincoln had scheduled a 11-day whistle-stop tour from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C., where he would be sworn in. Based on Kate Warren's investigations, it was agreed the strongest threat was when Lincoln would have to switch trains in Baltimore to get from Philadelphia to Washington. So to switch trains, he would arrive in Baltimore at Calvert Street and have to take a carriage and travel a distance of almost a mile to Camden Street to board the train that would finish his journey to Washington. This is a quote. 
The assassination plot was that just as Mr. Lincoln would be passing through the narrow vestibule of the depot at Calvert Street Station to enter his carriage, a row or fight was to be got up by some outsiders to quell which the few policemen at the depot would rush out, thus leaving Mr. Lincoln entirely unprotected and at the mercy of a mob of cessationists who were to surround him at that time. A small steamer had been chartered and was lying in one of the bays or little streams running into the Chesapeake Bay, to which the murderers were to flee, and it was immediately to put off for Virginia. So that's what the plan was, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Lincoln's itinerary was already public knowledge, and he refused to change his scheduled events, so in Harrisburg, he planned to give three speeches, raise the flag at Independence Hall, and then attend a, pro a high-profile dinner, leaving for Washington the following day. Pinkerton and another government official made a plan so that Lincoln could take an earlier train that night, but still fulfill his scheduled duties. So, at 5.45, before the fancy dinner ended, Lincoln's personal secretary would interrupt the dinner party to excuse the president-elect unexpectedly. He would change into a traveling suit and a soft felt cap and carried a shawl upon one arm to play the role of an invalid. As this is happening, Pinkerton had the telegraph lines interrupted to prevent any knowledge of the deviation in Lincoln's schedule so that the assassination would still be expected to happen at noon the following day rather than when he was actually in Baltimore. Wow. So Kate Warren, claiming to be traveling with her invalid brother, got four tickets ahead of time and had to bribe a conductor to keep the seats as it was a first-come, first-served train. So it was a public, like, um, everyman train rather than mm -hmm. a fancy scheduled train that the presumed president-elect would be on. Mm -hmm. So from Harrisburg, which was where his fancy dinner was, Lincoln took a special train to Philadelphia, where Kate Warren greeted him loudly as she would have a true brother. That's a quote. Kate Warren, the disguised Lincoln, and Lincoln's self-appointed bodyguard, a man named Ward Hill Lemon, Lamon, Lamon, whatever, entered the sleeping car through the rear for their overnight journey. They arrived in Baltimore at 3.30 in the morning, and instead of traveling to the next station by carriage or foot, they moved the sleeper car, with Lincoln still inside it, to the southbound tra train a mile away, and then had to wait for the train to arrive that would continue the journey. Whoa! And the train was late, so they had to sit there in Baltimore for like an hour and a half, wow. praying that they weren't caught. So... The whole time, even though the official assassination they were worried about wasn't planned to happen until, like, noon that day, they know if someone recognizes Lincoln, he could be mob-attacked right there because the sentiment against him in Baltimore was so great that everyone pretty much hated him. Whoa, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> so Kate Warren remained awake through the night and is why the Pinkerton logo is an open eye and the longtime Pinkerton slogan was... We never sleep. Oh my gosh. So Kate Warren's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so this was a huge get for Pinkerton. And it made him very credible, right? Made his whole agency really uh, high profile. Yeah. 
So after the successful aversion of the Baltimore plot, Alan Pinkerton and his agency were hired as personal security for the president during the Civil War, as well as intelligence gathering for the Union. Alan Pinkerton is credited as having founded the U.S. Secret Service. So here's some interesting tidbits about the Secret Service. It was formed... Oh my god, this is so rich. I know! (laughs) Like, everything, everything just kept leading to more little nuggets of fun little information. God... This is the exact opposite of what my research was like. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, interesting tidbits about the Secret Service. It was formed in 1865, and while it was responsible for protecting national leaders, like we would assume, its primary function when it was formed was to contend with overwhelming counterfeiting going on in the country. So it was one of the first criminal investigative organizations within the federal government, because mm-hmm. before that, I think they really only had like three departments, one of which was the Postal Service. So because their primary function at its outset was counterfeiting or issues of investigating counterfeiting, up until 2003, the Secret Service was a part of the Department of the Treasury rather than where it is now, which is the Homeland Security. Some more context is that While at the height of the Civil War and perhaps at other times of political tension, the U.S. president had bodyguards, it wasn't until after the assassination of President McKinley in 1901 that the U.S. president was given full-time security detail from the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. And that president would be President Theodore Roosevelt, who was McKinley's vice president and then succeeded him after his death. So, before the end of the century... The Pinkerton Agency gained a lot of work from government contracts as the U.S. had yet to establish their own internal departments for federal investigations. The Department of Justice was created in 1871, so like 20 years after Pinkerton Agency was established. The DOJ? What? I know, right? And was not given enough funding to flesh out their own investigative infrastructure, so they frequently outsourced their work to the Pinkertons. The Pinkerton agency also frequently took jobs to infiltrate unions and labor strikes, which made them very unlikable. Uh, Like, still. (laughs) Still kind of not liking that. Um, No, same. In 1893... The U.S. passed the Anti-Pinkerton Act that declared the federal government could no longer outsource their investigations or security to private investigators like the Pinkertons and their rivals. Apparently, this legislation is very loose, as the government so frequently uses private security and military agencies all the time. (laughs) But still, during his presidency, Teddy Roosevelt reformed and modernized the police force and created the Federal Bureau of Investigations, setting up the missing infrastructure and funding that allowed the public police to execute criminal investigations without relying on Pinkerton services. Wow, FBI. I know, right? It also enabled the federal government to carry out internal investigations to regulate and weed out corruption, which was obviously a big problem. I mean, like, if we think about how bad the police are in general, even now, Teddy Roosevelt was big on cracking down on police corruption in his day. Cool. So, in the meantime, the Pinkerton Agency was involved in 
not only providing protection for strike breakers in a lot of growing labor strikes, but also going undercover in unions and breaking down the organizations from within. And providing goon squads to intimidate strikers. Gross. So I wasn't sure what strike breakers actually meant. Like, were they breaking up protests or what? But strike breakers are people who work during a strike. Oh. Um, yeah. So they're usually new hires the company has brought in after the strike has begun. So they haven't done the job yeah. before. Um, and they're non-union, obviously. Yeah. But I didn't really recognize the term strike breakers because everything I know about striking I learned from Newsies and Billy Elliot. So I would have called them like scabs or something. Because... Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Scabs is also a term I've heard before. When I was looking for work at one point, Freddy's was hiring like crazy. And it was because they were trying to get a bunch of scabs because people were protesting. <laughs> and I, of course, didn't know at the time. But then I learned that and I was like, oh, uh, mm-mm. <laughs> oh, my God. They're still called scabs. <laughs> Not messing with that. I thought I was being like a 1911 peasant boy in rags calling them scabs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think they are probably still referred to that way. Street boy. At least by some boy. people. What is this? Feudalist? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so in one foray, a Pinkerton named James McParland was hired by the president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad Company to quash the labor unions of the company's miners, which led him to the Molly Maguires. The Molly Maguires were a secret society of mostly Irish coal miners, but who spanned the U.S., Liverpool, and Ireland, and were most noted for their activism and violent conflicts in Pennsylvania. Under the alias James McKenna, McParland gained information of various murder plots, though unsuccessful in ever preventing the murders from happening. So, thanks. Mm. Um, He gave testimony that led to the convictions of 10 men, leading to the downfall of the labor organization. During the trials, it was speculated that one suspect named Kerrigan was receiving special treatment because McParland was engaged to his sister-in-law. I mean, the soap well, opera of it all, I should probably check out the show because yeah, that's probably all in there. Wait, there's a show on it? Yeah, I mentioned that I knew of it. I knew of the Pinkertons because it's a sh- there's a show literally called The Pinkertons. It's a Canadian show and I have no idea where I can watch it in the US of A. So, right. But I did look for it, and I was like, uh, maybe I should check this out. So later in 1994, this trial, or series of trials, would be described by a Carbon County judge, John P. Lavelle, as follows. This is a quote. The Molly Maguire trials were a surrender of state sovereignty. A private corporation initiated the investigation through a private detective agency. A private police force arrested the alleged defenders and private attorneys for the coal companies prosecuted them. The state provided only the courtroom and the gallows. So, shady. Mm -hmm. Another dozen or so Molly Maguires were found guilty in the next two years and hanged, However, during and shortly after this period, accounts of the organization gave no indication that there was widespread violence among them or that they carried out violence against minors. And one player named John Kehoe, Kehoe 
known as Black Jack, was pardoned posthumously, and Pennsylvania Governor Milton Shep said the Molly Maguires were martyrs to labor and heroes in the struggle to establish a union and fair treatment for workers, and that Kehoe's popularity among the miners led the president of the railroad company to launch an attack against him. So basically, like, as soon as the trials were over and the men were hung, suddenly people started painting it with a different brush, right? Sure. Who knows what really happened? I mean, people really died, so... God, you said that was 94? 1994? Yeah, that's when that that was written. That opinion was oh, made. I see. Not that that's when it took place, because I was no. like, wait, what? Yeah, this all took place in about, like, <laughs> 1877 to 1878. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, so these events inspired Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novel in 1914, titled The Valley of Fear as well as a 1970 film starring Sean Connery and Richard Harris, a.k.a. Dumbledore. And this movie is probably a bit more sympathetic than the former. I tried to look more into the novel The Valley of Fear, and I, I don't think it... It didn't say much about the Molly Maguires, to be honest. So, well, the, the summary I read. I did not read the whole novel, obviously. So, mm-hmm. McParland... The same Pinkerton agent, McParland, was further involved in the Colorado labor wars in the conviction of a Harry Orchard. Orchard admitted under threat of death to killing Idaho Governor Frank Steunenberg in 1905. He named Big Bill Hayward, then president of the Western Federation of Miners, obviously a labor union, as having hired him to kill the governor. McParland convinced Orchard to confess as well as point the finger at Hayward by telling him of a separate case where a suspect had won his freedom by testifying against union leaders and had been given $1,000 to start a new life elsewhere. Hayward was acquitted, and Orchard spent the rest of his life in prison. So, basically, Kate Warren sounds really cool. James McParland sounds shady AF. I do not, like... I don't, I'm almost like, okay, but did, did he ever tell the truth? Like, pretty much anything, all these, like, trials he testified at and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm like, what was he doing? Like, nothing he says really <laughs> adds up. But who knows? You know, investigations in this time, it's like, we'll never know. Yeah. But basically, McParland was coercing Orchard. Shady. So, another Pinkerton... Historical event. Uh, The Pinkertons were also heavily involved in the Homestead Strike, which is also called the Homestead Massacre, in Pennsylvania in July 1892. Now, this event could probably get its own HBO Chernobyl-style miniseries. I did not make the effort to parse through all the details because we could probably do that another time. But basically, it was a six-day lockout and strike between the Carnegie Steel Company and a steelworkers union called the AA, or the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers. So it was a lockout and a strike between the company and the AA, which led to a battle on July 6th. The company closed the factories, and then the union men surrounded the property to keep the strikebreakers from entering. The Pinkertons were then sent by barge to break up the Union men who were expecting them and targeted their boats to keep them from reaching shore. 
Eventually, the Pinkertons surrendered, and 324 captured agents were marched to the Opera House, which was serving as a temporary jail in the town. On their way, the crowd attacked them, and several were beaten unconscious, and some were killed. According to the agreement with the strikers, they were to be convicted of murder, but when the Pinkerton agents were retrieved by the state militia, they were simply released and taken out of the city. So there are various accounts, but it seems that seven Pinkerton agents were killed in the fray. Around 35 agents were reported in the hospital injured. And the reports of the death and violence didn't look good for the Union. And widespread picket crossing ensued. The Homestead strike was ultimately a huge setback for the AA, who were until then an imposing force in the American labor movement. Governor Pattison took the side of Carnegie and rather than restoring law and order, focused on protecting the Carnegie property because guess who backed his political election? So another common job they took, I mean, so this is like obviously their early history (laughs) and I just like decided to race through the last most of their time. Another common job they took was to act as private security for railway cargo and transporting money, especially in Western America. So they frequently tracked down outlaws and bandits like Jesse James and the Wild Bunch, which was the name of Butch Cassidy's gang. Do you know who Butch Cassidy is? Yes and no. Have you ever seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? No, but I know the name, which is why I know the name Butch Cassidy. Okay. Okay. So a lot of these agents died. Like, it was pretty common. <laughs> wow. Um, well, at least from what I could tell. Maybe, like, percentage-wise, it wasn't actually that many mm-hmm. that died, but, like, it sounded like it was not unheard of <laughs> for them to mm-hmm. die. But, I mean, it was the wild, wild west, so. Did I just say the wild, wild west? As if... Yeah, it was the wild, <laughs> wild west, man. <laughs> oh, man, it was wild. Will Smith was there. Um, okay. <laughs> because of their conflicts with labor unions, the name Pinkerton is still associated with strike breaking and labor spying. Some revelations in the 1937 investigation into the methods employers used to control unions, such as Pinkerton union espionage, caused public outrage. Because of this, as well as the increasingly robust public police system that was growing at the time, the Pinkerton Agency moved away from criminal investigating and labor espionage and toward private security. From the 1960s, they no longer included the word detective in their agency letterhead. The company, which still exists today, so it's like over 150 years old. Oh, whoa operates internationally, focusing primarily on threat intelligence, executive security, and active shooter response. In 1999, the company was bought by a Swedish security company called Securitas AB for $384 million. Wow. Which, I mean, like, to me that sounds like a lot, but, you know. I mean, same. Um, so the Pinkertons are mentioned all the time in media, set especially in the turn of the century. There's obviously the titular Canadian TV show I mentioned, but they are mentioned in Boardwalk Empire, Ripper Street, Penny Dreadful, Deadwood, 310 to Yuma, The Legend of Zorro, The Magnificent Seven, The Titanic, and Red Dead Redemption 2. Cool. So 
this other little fun fact that I, I connected here. You remember, do you know what Dash and Lily's Book of Dares is? No. So, so it's a book that got turned into a TV show this past Christmas on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it's by these authors, David Levithan and Rachel Cohn. And I haven't read Dash and Lily's Book of Dares, but I have read their other book that they wrote together called Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And so... Oh, yes. Yeah. Did you read that? Yes. So the thing about Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, I was like, oh my god, like, Nick and Nora. Like the Nick and Nora from The Thin Man. But I wasn't sure because, like, Nick and Nora is also, like, the brand name of a slipper I used to own. So I was like, I don't know. (laughs) But it turns out Dash and Lily also has sort of a connection of like like a real people that they're referencing. Oh. So Nick and Nora, Charles, are the, the main characters in like a black and white detective noir film series from like the 50s or 40s or whatever. Or 60s. I have no idea. Old, black and white. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they're like a married couple... And, and they solve crime or whatever in their free time because they're rich. And they're in a movie called The Thin Man. And so it turns out there is a couple named Dashiel Hammett and Lillian Hartnett who would go by Dash and Lily. And they were both writers in California in the 40s or the 20s, 30s. Oh, God. <laughs> well, they lived a long life. They were there for all of it. Um, so Lillian Hartnett, she was a screenwriter and a playwright and an author herself. But Dashiell Hammett is actually the author of The Thin Man and The Maltese Falcon. So he created oh. Sam Spade from The Maltese Falcon, which was then turned into a movie with Humphrey Bogart, obviously, and Nick and Nora Charles. And, okay, so here's where it comes together where this is relevant i found out that dashiell hammett the author wrote largely on his experience as an ex-pinkerton agent wow fascinating well yeah that's so cool. that's that's the cool little nugget there i thought that, that blew my mind because i was already like all confused about nick and nora and then dash and lily and then it all came together but yeah, so these two writers, they basically, like, especially Dashiell Hammett was, like, a big deal because he basically invented that genre of, like, mystery noir, mm-hmm. you know. I thought to myself, you know, it's like, basic, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> she walked through the door. Yes, there you go. <laughs> um... And then it also, they were blacklisted. Both Lillian and Dashiell were blacklisted for communist sympathies, which is kind of sad. Oh, wow. Anyways, so that's what I did. Awesome. So cool. I have no comments other than great. Loved it. Good. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's talk about my research. <laughs> so in the show... At one point, Murdoch has the murder weapon with the blood on it. The the hoe. And he... Yes. <laughs> that makes it sound weird. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and takes it to Ogden and is like, look, 
let's figure out if this is human or animal. And Ogden's like, that's not possible. And then he's like, I've been doing some reading. <laughs> and they do, they do this test where they take rabbit serum, which is like the, like blood without any blood in it. Blood without the blood cells. Like the plasma. So like the fluid. Yeah. Is that what plasma is? So I think the serum also might include some other stuff besides just plasma. But oh, yes, okay. that. Mm -hmm. From a rabbit as like a gel. And they put it on a slide. And then they drop, I don't know, something that must be taken from oh. the hoe itself, <laughs> from the from the blood. They do it. They do a little drop next to it. It, but it doesn't look red like blood. They're both kind of clear. And then there's a reaction that happens on the slide. A line shows up, and that's supposed to be antibodies. Evidence, yeah, evidence that it's human. And so it's like, uh, and so it looks red. It looks suddenly like red blood oh. on the slide. So that's what happens in the show. <laughs> so I was like, I want to learn more about that. And then desperately tried to look up more information about this and felt like I just kept finding articles that were very short and I did not understand. I'm really not great at biology. So, <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so I did some research on serology. Serology is the scientific study of serum and other bodily fluids. Wow. Uh, usually refers to the diagnostic identification of antibodies in the serum. That's so gross and so cool. Like, the idea that people call it yeah. serum is gross. Sure. But the actual thing itself is cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so forensic serology is studying fluids, potential fluids at a crime scene. And so they look at blood and semen and saliva. You know, and then they have a bunch of different ways that in modern times we can use black lights and... Um, certain sprays luminol. that will show. Yeah, I actually don't know what you, you luminol spray. Does. <laughs> you spray something, and suddenly you can see that there was blood that that, that had been there. Mm -hmm. You know, they they have all kinds of like cool things that you can do now. But I'm like, <laughs> that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> so I'll give some definitions. Okay, some vocabulary. Mm -hmm. An antibody is a specific large Y-shaped protein used by the immune system to identify and neutralize foreign objects like pathogenic bacteria and viruses. Okay. An antigen is a molecule or molecular structure present on the outside of a pathogen. And antigens can be bound by specific antibodies or B-cell antigen receptors. When antigens are present in the body, it normally triggers an immune response. Okay. So this is, of course, relevant to uh, the current um, panorama uh, <laughs> because, you know, they talk a lot about the proteins on the outsides of the cells. Right. Um, and that, in this case, that would be the antigen. And you would have specific antibodies that would attach to that antigen and neutralize it. Okay. Is my, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. It's so weird because it's like, obviously, I took this test in biology junior year. It means <laughs> I remember none of it. I remember nothing. <laughs> none of it. That was nothing. not important. Having to remember like the way blood circulates from one left ventricle to the other with the what. Of course, I don't remember that. 
No. I remember nothing. Mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, now, precipitin. Oh, right. Okay. So, precipitin, so it's an antibody which can precipitate out of a solution upon antigen binding. Uh, Um, So, wait, so... So the antibody is the is the thing that's in you. Right. The antigen is the the thing. Is, yeah. So when that when that happens, when the antigen binds to the antibody, okay. it, it can fall out of solution, and that's called a precipitin. Oh, when it is is the Wait, it is falls the, out together of solution? when it falls out. Uh, yes. Does it like get solid? I don't totally understand, but that's the definition. Okay. <laughs> it, um, it's like precipitous pre- precipitation. Yes. Precipitin, yes, like like because it precipitates out of a thing. It's the precipitin. Okay. So to produce a precipitin reaction, you have varying amounts of soluble antigen, which are added to a fixed amount of serum containing antibody. Okay. So so the test that they were doing looks like an antigen antibody precipitin test. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guy who invented this, it's otherwise then called by his name, the Ullenhuth mm-hmm. test. So Paul Ullenhuth invented it in 1900. 19- o- <laughs> don't don't I worry don't- about it. I- it's like Ullenhuth. It's German. It's just Ullenhuth. Ullenhuth, I think. Okay. That's my guess. Paul Ullenhuth invented it in 1901. Um, and it is a test which can determine the species of a blood sample based on the discovery that blood of different species has one or more characteristic proteins. Mm. So what you're trying to do is test the sample to see if it has that specific protein in it. And it, if it has that protein in it, then it'll precipitate out a solution. And, and make that will be human or that will be... Yeah, and that would... Th- that would show that it's human because it the specific protein, the specific antibody is present. So it falls out of solution. And animals don't have that. Um, well, it animals have different proteins. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's just that specific species have different characteristic proteins. Yeah. So that's that's my that's my understanding. But obviously he invented this in 1901. Right. And that's later than our timeline. So there's potentially Paul Uhlenhuth, uh was building off of this other guy's work called Jules Bourdais. Mm-hmm. So then I have a little history about Jules Bourdais. Mm-hmm. He was born in Belgium in 1870. He got his doctorate in medicine from Free University of Brussels in 1892. He worked at the Pasteur Institute in Paris in the laboratory of Elie Metchnikoff mm-hmm. on cellular immunity. So in 1895, he discovered, and I'm quoting here, that the bacteriolytic effects of acquired specific antibody is significantly enhanced in vivo by the presence of innate serum components. In vivo? Yeah. So in, like, a solution. Okay. In something. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really know what it means. (laughs) (laughs) But that discovery supposedly led to a later and related process that he discovered in 1899 called hemolysis. Mm -hmm. Hemolysis? No, hemo because it's blood, right? Yes. But I asked a friend about it and they said it. 
that I was pronouncing it wrong, but I don't now remember how to pronounce <laughs> it right. So we'll just, <laughs> yes. Um, but so that is when red s- blood cells rupture when exposed to immune serum. Whoa. Which looked a lot like what we saw happen, where suddenly... They splody? Yeah. Where suddenly, like, the serum turned red. Yeah, because you know I... Mean? Right? Where they, where they made that reaction happen, and then it looked red. Right. So that so that was sort of my guess for how it could potentially be related, but I don't I don't really actually know enough to know for certain. But because he was doing this work around 1895, that's for me like how it could be connected because that's with the timeline that yeah. we're working with. But or they could just be fudging the dates. We don't we don't totally know. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that especially given that they didn't like explicitly name, you know, often Murdoch will will name the the researcher or the scientist that yeah. he's being based off of that like probably because yeah. they didn't like explicitly say they were sort of fudging it a bit that would be my yeah because they didn't even say like the name of the test yes. or like any any of that kind of stuff right yeah because they couldn't say the Uhlenhuth test if Uhlenhuth hadn't done it yet right yeah it would yeah, be yeah, a yeah. dead giveaway yes so just fun fact about Bourdais is that he worked on isolating cultures and creating tests for syphilis and whooping cough. Hmm. So, you know, that's that was the previous stuff. That was the previous guy research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, previous guy um, that Paul Uhlenhuth, um built off of. So I also looked up a bit about Paul Uhlenhuth. Mm-hmm. He was born in Hanover, Germany in 1870. So funny that these two were born in the same year. Were um, they really? Yes. One definitely lived longer than the other, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. So he was a bacteriologist and immunologist. He was a professor at University of Strasbourg, University of Marburg, and University of Freiburg. Um, he retired and led his own research institute in Freiburg, uh, the State Research Laboratory. So building off of Bourdais' work, obviously in in the year 1900, he injected hen's blood into rabbits, then mixed the serum from the rabbit with egg white. Ew. And the egg proteins... I know, gross. The egg proteins precipitated from the mixture, and from that he concluded that the blood of different species of animals contains unique proteins. I don't understand Okay. how you get that conclusion. I don't know why the hen was necessary. Yeah, he put hen's blood into rabbit's blood, so the two bloods were mixed, right? And then put it with egg white. Well, because I guess the egg has the same DNA as the hen, right? But yeah, then why did you need the hen's blood? I guess if you were gonna test, why'd you have to put the hen's blood into rabbits? I feel like you would test that separately. You would be like, here's rabbit blood and egg yolk, and here's hen blood and egg yolk. Yeah, so I don't. I don't really, I don't really get it. Um, this is sort of like when I was doing um, heroin and, you know, they're just... Oh, the brain stuff. They're just mixing shit together in the 19th like, century. Like, they're just... Like, I'm sure... <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, getting, they're getting a little wild up in there, honestly. <laughs> they're just freaking around with whatever they have. They're like, ooh, surprise, yeah. we've discovered arsenic. <laughs> Put it in your Ooh. dress dye. Oh my god. Wait, I think, yeah, uh, that is arsenic, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But so, 
some more some more stuff about him. He also worked on syphilis, like Bourdais, mm-hmm. uh, but he also worked on chemotherapy for cancer. And yeah. he found like the pathogen that caused Wiles disease, which I don't really know what it is. I don't really look <laughs> it up, but he found a pathogen as well. He was he was doing stuff. But then some not great stuff about him. Uh, he was in Germany. Oh. And... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was in the Third Reich. And then in 1933, he actively supported the firing of his Jewish colleagues. Mm. And in 1944, gained consent to carry out medical experiments on non-white prisoners of war involving immunization trials and blood tests. So, Streets, previously having been named after him in Freiburg and his hometown Hanover, um, have been renamed. Yeah. So. Not great. Not a good... (laughs) Not a good look, bro. Uh, yeah. So, felt like hard to just talk about the thing named after him without talking about some of that history there. Yeah. But, so, uh, so, figuring out all this stuff, all these differences in blood ultimately led to, blood fun fact, uh, blood types. Oh, yeah. So blood types were first discovered by an Austrian physician, Karl Landersteiner. In 1900, he found that blood serum from different persons would clump together or agglutinate, is what that, a clump together, mm-hmm. when mixed in test tubes, and some human blood would agglutinate with animal blood. So that was the first evidence that blood variation existed in humans. And then in 1901, so the same year that the Uhlenhuth was um, developing the test, mm-hmm. he observed definitively that blood serum would agglutinate with only certain other individuals. So based off of this, he defined three blood types, group A, B, and C, now later named O. Mm-hmm. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine in 1930 cool 1930 oh okay so that seems like but he developed he he researched this in 1901 you said yes okay and didn't get the the award or whatever until 1930 okay and another blood fun fact was also about blood types blood type personality theory oh yes um (laughs) popular in japan and south korea it's the belief that a person's blood type is predictive of their personality, character, and compatibility with others. Hmm. So if you've ever watched an anime and seen a character described with age and favorite food and blood type, that's why. Oh. Like in My Hero Academia, that's something that they do. I feel like if it was a Western, it would be like favorite food and their like astrological sign. Right. You know? Um, no, but this is blood type. Blood type stuff. I, of course, then couldn't help myself and looked up my own blood type, and um, it, it does not match me at all, so <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> What's your blood type? I type O. Same. It, yep. Ivy, supposedly, we're, like, really success-oriented and hard workers. Dude, and, like... as a Capricorn, <laughs> that's, a, that's what they say I am as a Capricorn, and I am like, oh my god, you do not... We're like super businessy and like really ambitious <laughs> and like disciplined. And look at look at us both currently. Oh my god, <laughs> I can't. Anyway, I have to so look I found away. That funny. <laughs> 
All right, so that's that's what I that's what I researched. Nice. I guess the only other thing about the episode that I looked up just because I didn't know and Ivy has insinuated to me that it will become more relevant later um, is consumption. Because at one point Ogden is like doing these breathing exercises and talking about um, how they're supposed to help strengthen the lungs and ward off consumption. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was like, I don't, what's consumption? <laughs> Wait, have have you never heard of it before? Or you were just no, like, I, had... I guess I don't actually know what it is. Um, a bit of both where I, I feel like I had heard of it, but I'm like, we don't talk about consumption now. So what on, what is it? Well, and it's tuberculosis. Yeah. As a, as a wizened period drama connoisseur. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I, I knew what consumption was since like, I was like seven and I watched Moulin Rouge. Oh my God. It has that, you know, I I read a lot of romance, like, as mm-hmm. in, like, capital R, romantic. <laughs> so, yeah, that comes up a lot. But I'm looking forward to talking more about it when, um, when the episode comes up. Ooh. Okay, so, yeah, I think that's it. If you liked our episode, we would really appreciate it if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can check us out on Twitter at Murdoch Pod or Instagram at Murdoch Podcast. And yes, so we'll be back with episode seven titled Body Double. And um, until then, have a good until week. Then. <laughs> yeah, until then, have a good weekend. Week? Oh, God. <laughs> All right, toodles. Bye. <laughs> bye.